Yep. It's a difficult thing to study, of course, though, yeah. because um, it's a very hard thing to blind. So if you're doing this in a proper formalised randomised control setting, it's actually a very hard thing to do. So you do an, epi- do an epidural and put saline down it? And give it <laughs> you, you could. You could do some sham epidurals and sham PCA. So yeah. That would be a tough one to... Yeah, no, to I don't think that's been done yet, Roger. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I guess you have to look at the outcomes. Um, and are you looking at pain relief? Um, hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week I've got um, three people together and we're going to discuss a, a very interesting topic which is um, sort of right down um, the obstetric anaesthesia alley. I've got um, Dr Matt Rutledge has joined us again. Hi Matt. Hey Roger. And uh, Mike Pake is back again. He was uh, on the last episode and he's come back to join the conversation again as well. Hi Roger. Okay. Um, so the topic that we decided we'd have, have a chat about, um, and I think a few people have sort of suggested it to us uh, in the past, was um, remifentanil PCIAs for um, pain relief and labour, which is um, a really interesting topic. Um, so I thought before we sort of uh, get into a lot of detail, we might sort of talk about the history, because there might be some listeners who aren't as familiar with uh, with uh, us, uh, well, so I think people in the anaesthesia world understand what the drug is and um, maybe understand the basics, but maybe we can talk about the history of uh, what remifentanil is and uh, where it came from. Who wants to do that? Mike, you know a bit about yeah. it? Yeah, um, okay, so uh, I mean, remifentanil is a ultra short acting and uh, rapidly metabolized opioid that came out in about 1990 something, mid 90s. Um, and was licensed for use in intensive care units for sedation and in operating rooms. Um, and it was immediately after release, of course, was uh, used off-label in a number of settings. Yep. And uh, I think the first case report of its use in this setting in labour was in 1999. Up until that point, um, most all our IV PCA that we used in labour was with fentanyl, and that was used only exclusively for those women who couldn't have an epidural. Um, And uh, after a few case reports and case series and then some small observational studies came out around the turn of the the, uh, millennium, Um, I guess the use expanded a bit and uh, remifentanil IV PCA in many places became the go-to approach rather than fentanyl. So what's the reason why, um, just stepping back a bit, uh, what's the reason why remifentanil is... um perhaps useful in um, labour as opposed to fentanyl or other opioids. So I guess that's the reason, I mean, mm. that's the reason why people started using it off-labels because of sure. pharmacology. Well, um, well, the original concept was, you know, because it's a very rapidly acting drug with a you know, peak effect site in the brain within a couple of minutes, so quicker than any other opioids, um, that it would work quickly after a demand was made. The woman might therefore get a peak effect um, during her contraction. Yep. Uh, then it'd be rapidly metabolised, um, and you know, two or three minutes later, it would be gone, and then they would be able to redose again when the next contraction came. So, whereas fentanyl was obviously a longer acting and more accumulative opioid. Yeah. So I was hoping as well that you'd avoid some of the neonatal effects, um, which is proven to be generally true because yep. fortunately the neonates do metabolise from fentanyl at the same rate as an adult so very rapidly um, and uh, so 
that was good, but the concept of being able to um, self-regulate and titrate to your contractions really hasn't proven to be the case. I mean, yeah. it's, it's virtually impossible because of not being able to predict the onset of the contraction and so on. Yeah, that's right. So when the woman starts to feel a contraction and then presses the button, it's probably still 60 to 90 seconds before the remifindle starts yeah. to work. So she gets, a, which time she gets a peak gone. after the contraction's <laughs> the gone. contraction's gone and she sort of slumps <laughs> into the bed. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Okay. I remember when it came out, there was a... Yeah understandable surge of interest because the um i guess the pharmacokinetics just seem to dovetail with the intermittent pain of labor yeah but like mike says it not wasn't quite, quite as, that good yeah you know. yeah but it's definitely useful when uh, uh, a long labor uh where you don't want to sedate the, the neonate yeah um, so yeah there's some recent work suggesting that only about one in 200 babies get you know, need some sort of clinical support after remifentanil PCA in labour. So in terms of the neonatal outcomes, they're very good. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? Mm. Um, all right. And so who who is it used for? Or who who, um, who do we use remifentanil PCAs for in general? Matt, do you want to Well, I guess jump in? Depends think, on the think, unit, things I may be changing now, but more historically it's been for women that have been considered to not be amenable to um, neuraxial analgesia yep um, so that might be people with a coagulopathy or um, some metal work in the back or some neurological condition that we would have uh, contraindicated uh, yeah. neuraxial analgesia so it's to provide an alternative and obviously there's many other alternative types of yep. pain relief which we probably won't delve into too much but I guess we were finding somewhere between doing not a great deal and putting an epidural in. Yeah, that's right. So trying to give them something uh, a bit more than nitrous oxide or intermittent morphine or pethidine. Is, mm. that, is that the sort of niche that most places found themselves using it, Mike? Yeah, I'd say so yeah. definitely, although you know there are a few places around the world that have embraced it as a technique to, to offer to everybody. So that's yeah. I think that's the interesting part. Mm. We're now starting yeah. to see... <laughs> Some of that data coming out, which is which is good. Yep. But um, and it is generally become widely available through all sort of m- most maternity hospitals um, do have it available. But those that are offering it as a routine are, are very much in the minority. I think still probably. Yep. Um, what about eff- efficacy? So we've we've sort of talked about how it works, and uh, there's any uh, what's the evidence for how effective it is? So it's been what. What did you say, in 99 when was its first use? It's mm. been 20 years of experience mm. sort of slowly accumulating. Mm. Um, do we have any idea about how effective it is? Well, my understanding is that there have been some small studies comparing it against other opioid medication and other tests. Yep. It's a difficult thing to study, of course, though, yeah. because um, it's a very hard thing to blind. So if you're doing this in a proper formalised randomised control setting, it's actually a very hard thing to do. So you do an, epi- do an epidural and put saline down it? And give it <laughs> you, you could. You could do some sham epidurals and sham PCA. So yeah. That would be a tough one to... Yeah, no, to I don't think that's been done yet, Roger. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I guess you have to look at the outcomes. Um, um, are you looking at beef? Are you looking at neonatal outcomes? Are you looking yeah. at complications? Are you looking at conversion to epidurals? Um, but my understanding is that there's been some relatively small studies comparing it against other traditionally used um, analgesics in uh, labour and shown reasonably encouraging results, i.e. more effective in terms of pain, yep. um, mm. relief and satisfaction. Yeah, there is one big uh, randomised trial that's been published comparing it with intramuscular pethidine that's come yep. out pretty recently and um, with several hundred women in it. And they did show um, that it's clearly superior to intramuscular pethidine. Yep. Um, so is this the RESPITE trial that you were telling me about? Trial. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. 
And uh, there are some smaller randomised trials comparing it with epidurals as well, which yep. generally show it's, it has an effect, but it's not as good as an epidural, as, as we know. Um, Matt, do you want to summarise the findings of that study? Because you were telling me about that before. Yeah, so yep. I, I, I think the RESPITE trial makes for good reading for anyone interested in this. Um, yep. It is, uh, without doubt, the largest randomised controlled trial uh, looking at remifentanil PCA use in labour. Yep. Um, a multi-centred UK study published in The Lancet, um, I think, late last year yep. um, and the interesting thing was their primary outcome wasn't looking at pain relief or complications, it was looking at the conversion to an epidural so women were randomised to receive either a remifentanil PCA or uh, intermittent pethidine intramuscular yep. and the primary outcome was how many ended up needing an epidural and if you were in the remifentanil group, the number that required an epidural was half of the pethidine group, so like 46% to 20%. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Yep. Um, so, and then the uh, there was also a finding that if you were in the rain fentanyl group, and probably because you had less epidurals, you had a lower instrumental delivery rate. Okay, so that's a sort of um, a fairly um, objective uh, measure, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And I think improved pain scores. Um, there was reduced... Um, oxygen saturations in the remifentanil group, but there was no difference in serious adverse events between both groups. Yeah, and how many, was it a couple of hundred women? There was a couple of hundred women in each yeah. group. Okay. All right, well, I guess that leads on to, so that's, so that um, tells us that it's, you know, it's, it certainly seems to be effective compared to uh, non-epidural analgesia. Um, the next thing I thought we should talk about is maybe, um, you know, we've got 20 years of experience in the uh, around the world now, what are some of the problems and controversies? I guess safety is one of the big things about it, and that seems to be the biggest controversy that I've heard. Yeah, I, who I wants to have a go at that? Yeah. <laughs> who wants to summarise <laughs> it and then I we'll delve if, if, yeah. I, if I think about my own personal feeling on this, I have completely waxed and waned over yeah. the years. I, yeah. I was initially a real fan, and then I became a fervent anti. Yeah, I was a hater for a while. That's right. You just have to see one or two bad things. Well, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. Well, I think Christ, combination of, of seeing them personally yeah. and then hearing people talking about them in yeah. enthusiastic tones. Um, and I have to say, more recently, as the evidence is, I guess we're getting better evidence. I'm I'm beginning to think that actually there may be something something in this. Yeah. Okay. What are the uh, who wants who wants to say what are the bad things that have happened with it? The safety concerns. Well, I guess the key thing is the key important. Yeah, there's there's been several cases reported of profound respiratory depression, uh, resulting in some respiratory arrests or some near respiratory arrests. Um, There was a case published some years ago in one of the UK journals of a lady having a rimfentanil PCA for a um, for labour in a uterine death. Yep, and ended up having respiratory arrest, requiring a perimortem cesarean section yes. for a dead baby so a very traumatic terrible case that the woman survived yep. there have been a few cases um, dosing being muddled up someone yep. pressing the button and getting a huge dose for their first press <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah becoming yes. very sedated so so that that is that is the key thing and of course in the setting of um, a labor room where the lights are down um, the pain is recurrent and Repeated, and the midwife may be in and out of the room, and yep. we may not be able to observe these patients like we do in theatre or the recovery room, or, or yeah, even a typical yeah. ward. Yeah, so I guess we'll we'll go into some details because um, there's been lots of suggestions about how to make it safe, um, but the, the biggest concerns were obviously all these case reports, and we did have one here in our institution too, didn't we, a few years back, mm-hmm. where we're not 100% sure exactly what happened, but um, 
there was a, a respiratory arrest which required management on low board, which was mm. pretty scary for all of us. And I think that might have been when you started to wane a bit, was it? Um, mm. When you have per- you see personal, uh, uh, we hear about a uh, case that happens um, close to home. Sort yeah, of so look, I, I think if you read about a case where, where a, a woman almost dies um, for something that you could argue wasn't necessary, it makes you think about how useful yeah, this is. Yeah, that's right. But then, of course, there are people that sadly have complications and deaths related to neuraxial analgesia. Mm. So, right, yeah. And this is a really good example where, in the absence of good quality literature, um, making your decisions based on case reports is not a great way of doing it. So yeah, I'm certainly right. guilty of that. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we know we've got a drug which is extremely potent and they're going to be, we know that the women are going to have apneas while they're on remifentanil PCA, they are going. Many of them are going to um, desaturate as well. So in, you must have really rigorous processes in place to try and minimise those. But it's the errors, really. I think that scare us all, um, yeah. as Matt has said. And um, to my mind, that partly comes with good standard operating procedures and protocols and uh, familiarity as well. Uh, so just recently. Three centres that, or three places that use remifentanil PCA a lot, have published their data um, and looked at their maternal events. Um, and actually, the data is pretty reassuring. So these are places that are familiar with it, are using it a lot. So there's a there's a European group um, called the Remifentanil Safe Network, uh, which has about well, I think they've got, they've got tens of hospitals in that. Um, there's a, a, a Dutch national setup for remifentanil PCA um, and then there's um, a group in Belfast who's been doing it for a long time as well but the the Swiss European group has just published almost 6,000 women um, yep. with only one clinical maternal respiratory event which didn't cause any harm long term yep um, so and they have very strict procedures and, and protocols for how every hospital has to do it. Um, and so, you know, it sounds as though it's possible to make it relatively safe if you if you can do enough volume and you get familiar enough and do it well. And I think that's pretty one of the key things is the volume, isn't it? Um, and, and big hospitals using this infrequently arguably are mm. going to be more risky. Yeah. Um, but if there's a lot more familiarity across all levels of staff... It's yeah, probably going right. to be a safer thing. Mm. Yep, and I remember when we had our event here uh, uh, at our hospital, we talked about should we get rid of them. Mm. Um, and one of the suggestions was, I remember even back then, was well, maybe we shouldn't get rid of them, maybe we should just do it more often. Mm. Yeah, so that, that does make some sense. And what are the key sort of things in the um, standard protocols that seem to be um, um, the, the, the sort of key essential things to follow to make it safe? I know education of the staff to look out for respiratory depression is probably the key thing because um, you know a lot of midwifery staff are all educated how to look after um, neuraxials like epidurals, you know, checking blocks and blood pressures and all that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. um, it's a completely different thing. Yeah, uh, I think check, <coughs> you know, yeah, keeping an eye on the breathing. Yeah, realising that it's the breathing you're looking at, not the, not, the, uh, not the cardiovascular system, mm-hmm. it's the respiratory system, yeah. Well, maybe I'll comment on the dosing, and Matt can comment on the yeah. on the processing and the technical aspects of how to yep. use it. So, in the terms of the dosing, I think it's pretty clear now that most places have gone away from using any background infusion, which was something that was mm-hmm. what's being done as well. So, I think the bolus only approach has has been by consensus agreed to be a safer approach. Yep. Um, and then there's uh, the dosing as well. So. 
Uh, I do know that the, this European group have they changed their dosing recommendations in 2014, I think it was, after they'd been doing it for several years, um, which has had an impact, uh, they think, probably. Um, uh, and they now have a maximum bolus dose of 30 micrograms, and it was higher than that previously. Mm. Obviously, you'd need to titrate to the patient's individual response to some extent, but they have set an absolute maximum dose that they recommend you don't go above. So that's one potential aspect. And what about the lockout? Uh, well, consistently, probably everyone seems to have stuck with a two-minute lockout. That's mm. been something that's been around for a long, long time. Most places have, have stayed with a two-minute lockout. Um, there's not a lot of work on the lockouts, I don't think, mm. in the literature, but um, that seems to be pretty consistent. The other interesting thing, we, we learned this recently when we were looking at it here, is... Um, the speed at which the pump delivers the yeah that's right the drug mm -hmm. and, and you can you can vary that um, mm -hmm. and so you may be actually getting this drug over a much longer period in some hospitals than that's right. Others, I remember um, we used to have a pump where we thought we were going to use for this, but then we realised that you pressed the button and it had a two minute lockout, but it actually gave the bolus over about that's ninety that's seconds. Right, or yeah. so it's almost like it's giving it so slowly. It's um, um, it's not really a, a, a usable pump. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's just another but you know setting that you can actually change to yeah and and. I mean, I guess you probably want to give it fairly quickly mm. um, and give the right dose. And, yeah. um, and interestingly, the respite study, the, um, the, the randomised control against epidural pethidin, they were, uh, against uh, intramuscular pethidin, they were using a 40 mic bolus, which um, you say we've moved away from now, Mike? I know well, we're using 30 no, the, mic. No, I'm just saying the European group, have, they opted to move to a lower dose. Yeah. yeah. It's good, and so I guess, um, and some of the other things that people talk about in their protocols, and not every protocol is different, I guess, but uh, they talk about having a continuous presence in the room, don't they? And then there's a bit of controversy about the monitoring for respiratory mm. um, status, like, you know, continuous SATs, or maybe even some places saying, what about using capnography, which you know, obviously has become more mandatory in theatre, even for things like sedation now. Um whether people should or a woman should or shouldn't have continuous oxygen. Mm. All these things are debated, aren't they? Mm. Well, I mean, you know, you're not going to pick up the apneas with just SATS monitoring yeah. um, until something bad happens, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, capnography's not been shown to date to be something that's feasible. Um, you know, the women don't like tolerating it. Uh, you, don't, you get a lot of artefacts within it. Um, and so, at the moment, it's it's not really something yeah, that's clinically useful. Yeah, there must be a huge, huge number of false positives. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. People talk or, or move, or exactly. yeah, doesn't doesn't pick up there. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing we should mention is, you know, that most places now recommend you use a dedicated cannula, so you're not, you know, running, yep. getting backup flows and mm -hmm. stuff like that. That you have the blood pressure cuff on the opposite arm to the one that's got the remove fentanyl IV line in, um, little technical things like that that yeah. might help as well. Um, Shall we go through what we having naloxone, having naloxone in the room? Yep. So everyone writes, you know, given naloxone, but actually going and finding an ampule and sticking it on the on the desk in that room mm -hmm. means that you know what's there. Yeah, do you want to go through what are, uh, what, are, what have we got on our protocol, which was... Yeah, so we've, we've developed a, a checklist and um, probably should give a, um, a, a, a nod here to one of our previous fellows, Pete Garnett. Yep. Was, um, I'll take a photo of, of his checklist and put it oh. on the um, page, web page for this episode. And I think looking back to some of those cases, one of the, the common themes was no midwife in the room at the time the event mm. happened. Yeah. Um, so regardless of all the sort of types of 
techniques and monitoring, just having a person there keeping an eye on things is probably the most important. So even before that, we try and get, make sure the uh, Labour Board coordinator is aware that there is a lady in Labour having her own fentanyl PCA, so they're aware of that. Uh, continuous midwifery presence, um, adequate room lighting. You know, there is a yeah. temptation to turn the lights down when things get going. Um, we talked about a dedicated small gauge intravenous cannula attached directly to the pump. Um, blood pressure monitoring on the opposite side to where you're giving the remifentanil in case the blood pressure keeps cycling. Um, and then you get a bolus stuck in the arm. Uh, naloxone in the room and available uh, oxygen, readily accessible, continuous pulse oximetry. Yep. And um, a documentation of respiratory rate every so often. And that's right. And the anaesthetist, uh, so a lot of these um, problems with pumps where things get programmed wrong and they get a massive bolus or occur right at the start of, the, um, of, of setting up the PCA. So I think we, we recommend that someone is there when, when, we, when you press go and that's start right, the pump. Yeah. You yeah. have to hang around. around. Mm-hmm. You have to hang around for the first sort of yeah. um, little while and make sure that the pump doesn't empty half a syringe into them, yeah. which is famously, mm-hmm. I know, happened famously um, during a, a um, awake intubation. In another hospital that I used to work at, where it was misprogrammed, and right. <laughs> a difficulty away patient had half a syringe of remifentanil over one minute. Right. Something, something crazy. <laughs> um, and then they not, could not, not only not be intubated, they couldn't be ventilated either. Is that I right? think it all turned out okay, but it was <laughs> not really ideal. <laughs> um, all right, so that's that, I think that's been a pretty. Um, uh, a pretty comprehensive sort of um, discussion around the topic. We're not sort of yeah. haven't gotten. Um, um, what's what I was going to say? We haven't got all the answers. There's still a lot of controversies, and there's some people out there who like feel strongly that things are, uh, that this technique is uh, should be banned. I think there's been some um, some titles in the in the anaesthetic literature. You know, must we press on until a young woman dies and things like that? Um, but obviously, there's there's other people out there who use it fairly frequently and. Um, they think in their hands it's pretty safe. So, mm. yeah, <coughs> I guess you could also see a, an article titled "Should We Press On?" and whilst we could be avoiding more instrumental deliveries and all the consequences of that. Yeah, right. So it's you know this is a space to watch. It may uh, become more common in, in the future. Yeah, I mean I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we, we haven't seen it. I don't think at our institution, but I, women coming forward and saying, "Look, I don't want an epidural. I don't want nitrous oxide. I want that drug. I can control myself. That's going to reduce my risk of." Yeah, having an epidural and an instrumental delivery and all the potential consequences yeah. of so that. So once mm. it gets onto the one of those um, mothers groups on yeah. social media or something, you could. Um, Which is why I think <laughs> it's very important that we we remain responsible for it and, and yeah, sure. don't ever let it be taken away from our hands. Well, yeah, I, think I think that's what happened in Belfast. They made it available, and uh, over a fairly short period of time, their epidural rate dropped from you know fifty percent to twenty five, and then twenty because many of the women decided rather than having an epidural, they'd mm. they'd go for this option of the yeah of the drug in the drip and. Um, yeah, and they've got you know tens. Of, I've got a ten thousand patient experience with it there now. Well, that's big. And uh, yeah, they obviously still think it's a good thing and offer it. So they're on the other <laughs> yeah. side of the fence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mike, well, can I give him your coming towards the end of your career, and you can speak openly? <laughs> and we know, we, what, what, what can you give us your honest? How, what do you feel about it? Because you, you've seen it evolve, and you've seen these these better studies coming out now, which mm. are showing more promise. Sure. Do you have well, a I don't think it's the bee's knees, clearly, um, but I think that these places that are using it 
uh, widely and freely available and have shown us that it can be used, it can be another option for women and we, you know, God, in my whole career we haven't come up with any other decent options um, at all. So, you know, the rates of satisfaction with it are high amongst the women who use it. Um, So my feeling has always been, yeah, we should keep working on it and we should keep trying to make it safer and we should persist with it. Um, you know, to me, I grew up in the era of epidurals coming in and, my, you know, we had plenty of complications and some life-threatening complications mm. and they, they, you know, they were much more common in that first era when people were getting familiar, we were yeah. refining the technique. So, you know, I see remifentanyl PCA as the same, you know, um, we more the more people working on it, more places using it, more research being done, we will eventually hopefully come up with a technique which a lot of women will like to use and we'll be happy with and it will be safe enough that we'll all think it's acceptable. So that's where I stand. I, I, I'm not on the anti-fence at all, really. Yeah. And do you think we maybe need to redefine what we consider a effective labour analgesic, I mean, not necessarily just looking at pain mm-hmm. and looking at everything else around that, be that conversion sure. to other types of things. I mean, I, I looked after somebody recently, and, and strangely, it was the first time I've ever prescribed a premifentanil PCA <laughs> in labour, just to show how infrequent we use it. Or yeah, well, we've done around 100 or something, haven't we? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I got it up and running, and I and I, I watched it, um, and it just didn't look very good. And I saw her the next day, mm-hmm. and she said, I could not have done it without that. It was just... Mm. Fantastic, just yeah, brilliant. Yeah. yeah, I think the, um, the opioid euphoria or the all the effective aside yeah. of pain relief that you know the pain scores don't drop. Well, they drop quite well initially, but then they tend to mm. keep rising again. So you know, if you just look at pain scores, it looks okay, but not that good. But you know, if you actually maybe you know, more, look at yeah. the whole picture for many yeah. women, I think it's something that's that's very satisfactory. Yeah, and I think there might be some in individual variation. There was definitely I remember looking after a woman who had um, thrombocytopenia, and she'd had two or three children with epidurals, and then uh, we we suddenly told her she couldn't have an epidural, and she had to have a remifentanil PCIA. And she wasn't that impressed mm. afterwards. I said, you know, she goes, oh, that was you know, nowhere near as good as an epidural. So I guess it mm. depends on your prior Absolutely. experience. Yeah. She, she was like, she knew what to compare it against and she wasn't that impressed with it. Yeah, but it's never going to be a gold <laughs> standard. <laughs> no. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. yeah, I think it's worth persisting with and yep. I think we probably should do more of it. Yep. All right, thanks, guys. Really interesting topic. And, um, yeah, I just want another little um, um, plug for the... Uh, for the survey I've got on my website for um, topics that you want us to cover, um, and we'll see if we can uh, we'll see if we can accommodate it. Has to be something we feel comfortable talking about at, at this stage. Still, just Graham and I are going to count to two thousand in Hindi. So um, please, <laughs> <laughs> please don't make me do that. <laughs> All right, thanks, Come on, listeners. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.